It's a professor of psychiatry that I uh, bumped into this last week in my studies. Her name is Jacqueline Golan. She's a professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And her particular research follows human decision-making. And what she's been doing is she's been following how the political and social and kind of plague-infused upheaval of this last year has been influencing the way that people are making their decisions. And her findings are this, essentially distilled down. We are in a collective cultural existential crisis. And this crisis is catalyzing radical life altering decisions about everything within our society right now. So huge changes of directions have been made through the COVID quarantine. Huge changes of direction around courses of study for college kids, around career path commitments, around living situations, around life patterns, and particularly huge decisions are being made around relationships. Golan says that relationships are most often the first thing to get a complete makeover when people really hit the pause button and say, what am I doing? And she says the trend right now is people are really focusing on what kind of connection they want. So her, her research, what it's doing is it's highlighting something that I believe God is doing in the church. God is working this tremendous work of renewal by the Holy Spirit of our perspectives on who we are and what we do in the world with each other, for God, for the sake of the souls around us. Zoom fatigue, <laughs> not being able to see a movie on Friday night with your friends, how badly do we all want to just go catch a movie? Like the, the, the hostile divisions that are constantly coming through our news feeds, all of these moments of crises, small or large, they have us focusing on what kind of connection we not only want, but a lot of us are asking, what kind of connection do I actually need? Now, in the first century, there was a community much like ours, probably about the same size of our brothers and sisters, most likely somewhere in Italy. And they were enduring political oppression. They were wrestling through the social strife of their day as a marginalized minority community, and they were dealing with the threat of famine and plague, just like us. And some of them within that community, they were growing bitter, and they were becoming terribly cynical. And so in the midst of their crisis, rather than committing more fervently to God and to each other, they were deconstructing their faith, and they were abandoning the fellowship of the saints. And so the author of Hebrews, who I had you turn to, Hebrews chapter 4 verses, or Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 to 25, he admonished them there towards the end of his letter to them, saying this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Verse 25, Hebrews 10. Not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so in existential crisis, the author of Hebrews was compelling this tiny little community somewhere in Italy to press deeper and harder and more intentionally into community. You need to understand that as a newly forming church plant, Neighbors 3.0, whatever we are right now here in San Diego, this is going to be our call for the rest of 2021, and this is actually going to be our call for the rest of the life of this church. 
So this morning, we're just going to meditate on some of the highlights of this author's call to that community and apply it to ourselves. But one gigantic, obvious elephant in the room, Brazilian and British strains of COVID are still ramping down upon us. And so I want to recognize that while we are calling people to community, we still are going to be honoring the protocols, masks, social distancing as best we can, while supporting our friends and our family that are vulnerable. Right now, I can think of probably seven to eight couples that aren't here on a Sunday morning right now, either because they have really vulnerable people or their family is feeling very vulnerable or their extended family is feeling vulnerable or their workplace coworkers are like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And so the pressure is being applied. I can think of a number of couples that aren't here this morning. And so what we want to do is regardless of whether we're here physically or in our small group on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Tuesday night, we need to, across digital platforms, be in each other's presence somehow. A text, a phone call, a connection point. Somehow we need to be together. Everybody got that? All right, for our text this morning, here's what we're going to look at. And you can write this down. Provocative community. That's a fun one. Provocative community. Committed community. There's the dreaded word, commitment. Oh, please, God, don't make me commit to something. Legacy community. That's a fun one we'll talk about. And then finally, we want to be an already not yet community. Let's jump in. The call in verse 24 of the author of Hebrews is this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In this current cultural moment of existential crisis, God through the scriptures would come to the church, to us, and he would say, in this crisis, I want you to turn your attention to one another with greater focus. I want you to consider those whom God has sent you to and those whom God has sent you I want you to consider them with greater care and deeper concern. And in your consideration of those to whom God has sent you and those with whom God has surrounded you, I want you to consider, to focus, to think about, to contemplate how to spur one another on. Now that word spur could be translated in our English, provoke. There are translations that literally say, I want you to think about how to provoke each other. So as we focus on one another, we're supposed to be considering how we provoke each other. Now, provoke is generally a negative word in our vocabulary. You know, we think of that annoying sibling that just provokes us to the moment where we just completely lose our minds. We think of, Josh just pulled his sister's hair right when I said that. And so uh, thank you for helping me lose my focus. We think of that annoying coworker that provokes us to just frustration. The minute we get around, we're just like, ah, I feel so provoked. But the author right here, he's using this intense wording towards a positive end. We are to provoke each other to love and to good works. We want to be a provocative community. We want to provoke each other to love and good works. Now think about this. Love and good works. This is what we were made for. Love and good works, purpose. 
This is the things that we long for most. These are the things, love and good works, these are the things that actually make us fully human. Love, that gives us that sense of security and acceptance and safety. Love is at the core of what it is to be human. And good works, well, good works are what God actually made us for. None of us are a mistake, not a single one of us. We are all part of this cosmically unfolding eternal plan of God. And the good works that every human was designed for, whether they're doing them or not, it's those good works that actually give us a sense of significance and meaning and purpose. And so we were created to love and to be loved and to fulfill God's purposes. And without love and purpose, we're actually less than what God intended us to be. But by being loved and by loving others and then doing good works that we were made for, well, in so doing those things, we become more fully ourselves. In losing ourselves to love the other and do the good works that God has called us to, we become more fully ourselves, more fully human. And none of that can happen alone at all. It's impossible. We cannot love in an individualized vacuum. And good works can't be done with a focus completely on self because the whole of God's purposes unfolds for the sake of others. And so Christian community and our perspective on Christian community embraces that at its core. We come together to be loved. We come together to love. We come together to do good works. And as we're together, we are considering how we might poke the proverbial bear and provoke each other to even more love. Provoke each other and push each other towards greater good works. And as we're doing that, as a community together, each of us are becoming more fully human, more fully ourselves. The very thing we all long for. Sense of significance, meaning, purpose, identity. All of these things happen in this place. It is a beautiful, powerful, shaping provocation that community creates. And as a provoking community, what we need to do is we need to learn to see each other as gifts. I am a gift to you, and you are a gift to me. All for the sake of support and growth and spurring. We talked last week about how radical individualism has corrupted the way that we think about Christian community. We now have a tendency to push community away because we've been trained by our culture that we shouldn't be shaped by those who are around us. We don't want their fingerprints on us. We self-define. We're told that what others say or think we shouldn't listen to. We need to do what's best just for ourselves. Guys, there's absolutely no category for that in the New Testament at all. Because even, even when we say, I am self-defining, I'm a radical individual, I don't need anybody, nor do I want anybody, we're actually being shaped by a community that told us we don't need anybody. <laughs> Do you guys realize that? The group think of our day that promotes radical individualism is a form of community shaping our very souls because God has not designed us to self-define. God has designed us to be defined within a community. And so whether we want to or not, we take the influence of community around us and it's our responsibility to be watchful, to be vigilant, and to ask, which community is shaping me the most? Is it political? Is it social? Is it fame? Is it popularity? Which peer group is pressing me the most? Which community has its fingerprints the most clearly upon me? Because something does right now. Some community is shaping you. And so Christian community is actually, here's where the weight comes down. It's an intentional choice that we actively pursue. 
Because everything in our sinful flesh and everything in the satanic realm around us resists our pushing into community. Some weeks ago in our Lectio Divina journals, if you have one, I'm sorry, we sold out. And they're sold out at the company we got them from. We're going to try to get you more in June. But as a community, we're going through these Lectio Divina journals. And we were meditating, uh, I don't remember when it was, it was a couple weeks ago, where uh, the conversion story of St. Paul, the great church planter. And in that story in Acts chapter 9, Paul is converted and he goes completely blind because the light of the Lord blinds him. And he's tucked away praying. And God commissions a fellow servant named Ananias, a guy that Paul was actually going to kill. He says to Ananias, I want you, Ananias, to go and pray for Paul that he might receive his sight. And so this whole scene unfolds. And after I was done meditating, I was like, wait a second. Why did Ananias need to get involved in the first place? I don't get it. Like Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, blinds Paul, talks to him face to face. But then from heaven beyond, he commissions Ananias to go and pray for Paul. Why didn't Jesus just come and do it himself? He'd already shown up face to face. So that evening, I mean, I literally spent all day like, that's just weird. I don't understand why Ananias had to be involved in this whole thing. That evening, we're sitting around the dinner table, and at night, my kids and I and my wife, we all talk about our Lectio Divina meditations in the morning. And Sophia, Sophia, like, just starts talking. She's like, I was so blessed by the fact that God called Ananias to help Paul. Because, first of all, he calls Paul his brother. Like, this was the guy that was going to kill Ananias, and yet his love for Paul was so great that he called Paul a brother. He became family to him. And then the fact that God called Ananias, it just showed me how much God wants to use community to bring about transformation in our lives. <laughs> and then she capped off her statement saying, it made me want to learn how to be more dependent on my community. And at that moment, I burst into tears, hugged her. <laughs> no. Insightful though, yeah? God used Ananias even though he could have used himself because he wants to use the community to shape us. And we need to learn to be more dependent on our community. We depend on our provoking community because that is where we know God wants to use other people to heal us and transform us. And the reality is, you guys, and I'm about to work myself out of a job right now, but we modern Western Christians, we have been trained that transformation comes by information, but it doesn't. What do I mean by that? One of the potential weaknesses of this Sunday morning thing, which we'll never stop doing, Lord willing, but one of the potential weaknesses is you walk away from a sermon where you get some information, maybe a couple good jokes that make you giggle a little bit, and maybe some quotes that you can tweet or put into your Instagram f feed later. But you walk away from that thinking, okay, I've received the information of God, and now I'm going to be transformed through it. So you come to get your information personally, and that's about it. That's the extent of it. But this information on a Sunday morning can only take you so far. Spiritual formation, the formation of your soul, it actually is designed by God to come through dependent, interdependent integration with the community being shaped by the information on Sunday mornings. It's a whole thing. You can't have one without the other. Transformation comes through information on Sunday mornings and the integration of that information in context, in relationship, one with another during the week as the church. So we have to learn to be more dependent upon community because this is how God does it. This is just how God does it. There's no other way around it. And here's where community gets really messy and hard. Here's where the elephant in the room comes just tromping through our Sunday morning 
because so many of us have church hurt. And if you don't have church hurt yet, pastorally, I just want to encourage you, you will. You will. Church hurt is such a common thing because we're a broken people in a broken world. But God, in a provocative, in a provocative community, God actually uses everything, everything, even things that are actually even against God's will, things that are actually even against God's will. God uses those things in community to shape and provoke our souls to greater love and to greater work, good works. It's not only, and this is the misnomer. This is where I want to be so honest. This is where I want to tear the Band-Aid off. This is where I want the blinders to come off. I don't want us to have some fabricated ideal of community where you come into neighbors, you're like, I finally found it, my perfect church. It's just the right size. It's just the right people. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's hugging. And then somewhere along the line, somebody hurts you, and the dream dissipates, and you depart. We have to head that off at the pass right now, right here, today, as the beginning of a church plant. Because in every single church, there's going to be wrongs that are done and wounds that are received, and they are painful, and God wants to use the hard things like conflict, confusion, frustration, and wounding to actually provoke our souls to further love and good works. I perceive, personally, and I've experienced this myself, that within the Western church, there is somewhat of an entrenched immaturity. God brings communities and souls right up to the brink, and then he affords them the opportunity through something negative that happens to provoke them to love. Something happens in a relationship. Something happens that hurts. And rather than that person or that community pressing in and saying, I'm going to weather this. I don't get it. I'm hurting. I'm confused. I'm disoriented. I'm scared. Rather than a continual commitment to press in, there's an immediate church down the street that we can just depart to and go to. Now, in some cases, there is abuse, and that church, the light has left, and there needs to be this disbandment and this, this taking apart of that. But in so many instances as a pastor, myself included, I've seen God begin to do the work of really forming a thick, thick community. But it's short-circuited because of our, our inability to stay committed because of the pain. When we are hurt in community, God is provoking us towards that opportunity. It's an invitation to love, to actually absorb wrong, like... <laughs> This is the hardest part of all of it. To absorb wrong and trust that justice is being done in the eternals with Jesus on the cross. And to forgive like Jesus. Those that are the most mature and exemplar within communities of Jesus are the ones that have been hurt by the community of Jesus and stayed. I've seen it over and over. They're usually well into the later decades, much past their 20s, let's just put it that way. And they've weathered, they've taken some beatings, they've seen some bruising, and there's a softness about them. And they're not surprised when somebody says something stupid or misdirects or does something wrong. They're not surprised. They simply say with Jesus, this is an opportunity to be provoked into love and good works. I remember at our church replant in Seattle, there was this old guy there, he was about 70 years old. And man, it just seemed like I was just like, ding, 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 like whack-a-mole. I was just offending, 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 offending this cute little church that we were replanting. And Doug, Doug would just, conversation after conversation would filter through Doug, and Doug would say, this too shall pass. You don't need to leave. God's doing a work in your soul. Doug was like this bastion of benevolence and kindness, wisdom. And the guy had been beat up by the church like you wouldn't believe. Friends, 
you guys. This level of community, it's a level of community that supports and cares for each other, but it also recognizes that we are going to misstep. We are going to wound, but we forgive and we grow. Now, there's something really interesting in San Diego. There's like a million of these little church plants of like 100 people, and we are one with them, and they are one with us. So wherever you're landing, that's fantastic. If you land here at Neighbors, fantastic. If you land at wherever you land, the 20 little church plants that are going on right now, the point is you land in such a way that you land together because we're actually only one church. We're actually only one church. Did that make sense what I just said there? I don't want to lose you guys on that. All right. Number two. Number, the first point was the longest. Number two, we're a committed community, which is kind of what I'm getting at right now. I think that we deceive ourselves into thinking that the Christian practice of community is an easy discipline. And the reason that we're deceived is because we keep being sold this bill of goods that the world and our radical individualism will eventually come into orbit around us. And so when we show up at a church, we have this kind of fog through which we're seeing where we're, our expectation is that the world will revolve around us and our, our stuff. And then it doesn't. And so this is the most difficult discipline in Christian community is to be radically committed in such a way that unless there's like, unless there's been sin or the Holy Spirit is moving you and you're processing that with your community, then there's this radical commitment to stay with it and stay in it. And guys, I know, I know, come, I know we've all left churches and I know we may leave this church. So I don't want this to be heavy-handed. This is to be processed in community. This is just to be thought through. These are seeds to be planted. But this was the author of the Hebrews. This is the author of Hebrews' call. Verse 25, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't give up. Don't run. Don't leave, right, when God is doing something so deep and profound, either by positive or by negative provocation of the community. And let me just say this too, because if things get worse in 2021, let's head this off at the pass as well. Don't depart in crisis. For many, the crisis, the existential crisis of this last year has divided their loyalty and deconstructed their faith in, in dangerous ways. And so what were once just kind of common commitments are crumbling under the pressure. And in some measure, this is justified. I don't want this sermon to be corrective. I want it to be compassionate. This has been brutal. This year has been brutal. It's been brutal on our souls. Of course we're disoriented. But this has created in some, statistically speaking, the habit of giving up on God and God's community. Barna, clear back in July, reported that one in three, one in three Christians are no longer attending any sort of church gathering, including online streaming through COVID-19. One in three? A third, a third of our brothers and sisters right now are so hurting, so disoriented. They're so, I don't know what to do. And then there's this decision. Well, I don't think I'm going to press into community. I'm too scared. I can't, I don't want, I'm not going to reach out. I'm alone. A third of the church has made a habit of that. And what the author of Hebrews is compelling us to is that more than ever, we need to encourage each other. We need to be compassionate and consider, I'm here, I'm committed. How might I provoke my brother, my sister back into some sort of gathering, whether it's just a phone call, a text, something that says, I'm here, I haven't left, I'm for you, I love you, I'm with you. We need to be that provoking community if we're the ones pressing in, reaching out to the margins of the church 
Because 33% of the church right now is just adrift in the political and social news feeds of the day and sitting alone in quarantine watching Netflix. In Christian community, guys, if and when things get uncomfortable or if and when crisis hits, this is the time when we dig in our heels and we leave. I was just pointing out that that guy was rocking as he went across the street. Manhattan pastor John Tyson, he calls Christian community a network of stubbornly loyal relationships. I love that. Stubbornly loyal relationships. And so at, at Neighbors, we actually try to frame up community in this idea, this commitment and the idea of covenant or the idea of, of a vow, a covenant, like a marriage. We commit ourselves to community in health and wealth, in poverty and riches, in sickness and health. We say, I'm in. And we use the language of covenant because we know that nothing short of these types of words can resist the forces that are trying to pull us, pull us away back into the world. And of course, there are some of us that are going to be called by God to move. You, you kids that are here at SDSU, of course some of you are going to be called. Your career and God is going to call you into a different city. But I trust that if you're committing to neighbors, which I pray you do, please, God will call you to do that in the midst of your community. And you'll pray with your community. I'm really praying through this job. I'm really praying about being sent by my community. We don't leave alone and we don't go alone when we are called, either by the Holy Spirit to a, a mission field. Some may be called to other churches for whatever reason that may be. But we would exhort you. And Evan and I have been talking a lot about this. I'm teaching there next week to talk about family of churches stuff. We would exhort you to process that with your community, not just alone, so that you have the community shaping your soul. Guys, our prayer is to be a healthy family, and family is messy. How many of your families are squeaky clean, Warden June Cleaver, leave it to Beaver? I don't see a single hand. <laughs> How many of your families are, no, I'm not even going to ask that, never mind, because everybody will be like, that's me, I know, that's why I'm in therapy right now. <laughs> family is painful, family is constant, family is committed. I just want that, let it sink. Just let it sink, because it's for the good of our souls. And when families are like that, they leave legacies. Number three, we're a legacy community, we're almost done. Legacy community, what, what do I mean by that? Do you guys realize that the family of God, going clear back to this community somewhere in Italy that the author of Hebrews was writing to, do you realize that we as a family, as a community, we stand in a long line of those who came before us and we are merely starting and setting up a long line of those who will come after us. And so to build anything takes a very long time. And in God's economy, it takes generations, hundreds of generations to build anything beautiful and really profound takes persistence over the ages. And so we're casting this vision, this call. We're giving this call to a lifelong participation in a community. But not only through our lifetime, but think about this. Through the lifetime of those we influence spiritually and even physically. Our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and beyond. I know at 23, it's hard to think about your great-great-grandchildren. But just for a moment, realize that the community you commit to now will influence your great-great-grandchildren. I got to tell this story. 
So a number of years ago, when I was still in Twin Falls, Idaho, where my wife and I got married and kind of were raised, one day, this is early on in my Christianity, one day I'm walking down the sidewalk and this woman is walking towards us. I don't remember. I think we'd come from a hair appointment or something. And she approaches us and it turns out that she's like my dad's second cousin removed, you know, one of those situations. And she had heard that one of the Braga boys had become a Christian. She had heard through the grapevine, because uh, my family is not known for religious piety. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I come from a long line of Portuguese, hard-driving, red-wine-drinking people. And I was one of those people, for sure. So she had heard that somewhere along the line, one of the Braga boys had become a Christian. And she, she realized it was me. So she was sharing with my wife and I, and she said, did you know that your great-grandmother prayed for somebody to come along that would turn the Braga line of men towards Jesus. I was like, I had no clue. And she's like with a tear in her eye, not trying to be dramatic. She's like, Dan, you're it. Great grandma Prather's prayers. You're it. We have to think about this community praying for our great grandchildren. I am praying that those most of you, like 90% of the church this morning is actually single, which is beautiful. But I am praying that if and when God calls you to be married and have children, I'm praying that your great-grandchildren would be married in this place. I'm praying that we would leave this legacy of provocative community. And for the singles, for all of you that are mostly single right now, you need to understand something. In this dysfunctional, messy family called the church, the singles serve as like aunties and uncles and mentors and guides to the rest of the church. And, and they're taken in by the biological families and they leave these legacies of teaching and discipling and bearing fruit within the biological families as integral parts of the family systems. I mean, how many of you guys can remember one babysitter from your youth? I've got a couple. Most of them I had crushes on, to be honest. <laughs> How many of you can remember the babysitters? But the singles within the family church system are so much more than babysitters. You have purposes to give to the younger people of the church, to the parents in the church. You have mentorship and teaching and discipleship. It makes you a million times more influential in a legacy style of community. You contribute to that which will be. And then finally, as we wrap up, Christian community, we are the inbreaking of what the future is actually going to be. And so we live in community as a precursor to the coming of Jesus. That final line there in verse 25, encourage one another all the more, spur one another on, provoke one another more towards love and good works all the more as you see the day approaching. The church is actually an expression of the kingdom of God in the world. We're an expression of it, but imperfectly. We don't fully embody the kingdom, but in part, we imperfectly express the kingdom of God, but sin continues to mess it up. That makes us right now this morning an already not yet community. The church all throughout San Diego is an already not yet community. And so we are expressing that kingdom right now as we live together, as we love each other, as we provoke each other. And we're doing it imperfectly and not fully because of our sin and brokenness. But one day, it will be full. Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What Paul was saying is this provoking, committed, legacy, dysfunctional family community it is the fullness 
of Jesus who is filling everything in creation in every single way. What Paul is saying is that one day, the community that exists right now will literally full, it will literally fill all of the world in perfect harmony under the reign of Jesus. And we're the beginning of that. Until then, right out here on the blacktop, our little tiny slice of the pie, we are like the pioneers and the frontiersmen living as outposts of his kingdom in this world right now. Imperfectly, brokenly, in messy ways, with the gospel of grace and his blood covering us and his wounds being our healing for our own wounds. Until then, the same Jesus who's going to literally part the sky and restore all things is also the one who is sitting beside us in this gathering, drawing us into the dance of the Trinity of perfect community. And so as we get ready to come to communion, Shua and Sophia are going to come up and lead us in song. Weston's going to lead us in a communion meditation, but let me make this final call. What existential crisis has you stirred up right now? Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's realizing that the anxiety and the depression and, and even seems like even the therapy and the counseling and, and maybe even the medication is not, it's not tipping the scale, whatever it may be. Is it, is it maybe a, a social thing, a family thing? Maybe it's a church thing right now. Maybe it's just the general anxiety and fear surrounding 2021. I want to invite you. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us together to let the community this year shape us and provoke us. It is terrifying. It is terrifying to step into a community to have a night where we break down and full snot cry in front of people because we're just so tired and we just need them to pray for us. That's terrifying and vulnerable. It is overwhelming to open ourselves up and allow people to influence us and speak guidance to us. It's terrifying to, to lose control of our lives and allow other people to maybe direct our steps. But if the crisis is severe enough, I want us to consider each other and then commit to each other by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own strength, not out of fear and condemnation, but compelled by love and the hope of transformation. While we're here, while God has us here to commit with long haul, long-term, lifelong vision to each other. Yes, that's terrifying. <laughs> but that's how God does it. We're to think like a family about community or to think about young and old, single and married, rich and poor, black and white, and everything in between, this radical, diverse community of people. And I want to challenge us to think with longevity and legacy, and then to live in that already, not yet, of the king's kingdom and his return. If the Spirit has stirred you in any measure this morning, just respond with a willingness. Would you close your eyes with me? And I want to pray a prayer over.